Yeah, Mark, many people have seen the picture going around on Facebook of a young man named Israel Salas. I talked to his wife on the phone tonight, and she tells me that yesterday at the age of 22, he passed away of coronavirus. He was the kindest, most gentle man. Merle Dry, a friend to everyone, a hard worker. That's what his dear friend told me by phone today. Truly the heart of a servant. He he always was looking how he could help somebody else. I'm And no funeral for those of us who loved him to hold each other close. I'll miss you dearly, my brother. Yes. When Diffie died, his family was devastated, and to make matters worse, they couldn't have a funeral. But now that services are resuming, they plan to properly say goodbye, hoping to hold a celebration of life so his fans can do the same. A father, brother, son, musician, loved by many. Joe Diffie tragically losing his life to coronavirus. More than 320 Oklahomans have died due to the coronavirus with fatalities in towns and cities across the state. The stats are sobering, and they show Oklahomans over the age of 65 have been especially vulnerable, along with residents and staff of nursing homes and long-term care facilities. But behind the numbers are people, neighbors, fathers, grandmothers, coworkers, and friends. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder, and on this week's episode of Listen Frontier, I speak with my colleague Cassie McClung about the current state of COVID-19 in Oklahoma, while also reflecting on the loss of life and the impact to communities across the state. Cassie, earlier this week, you wrote a story taking a look at where a significant number of Oklahoma's cases are coming from, which are nursing homes and long care facilities. And many of the cases and deaths involve residents and staff members at these places. But as you also noted, I mean, we've seen a range of, of ages and demographics and locations across the state. And that for the last couple of months, we've, we've talked a lot about numbers and counting every day, the numbers going up. But in your piece, you also mentioned that, you know, behind these numbers are, are you know, are real people, are real names. And I started, I actually took some of the names that you mentioned in your story and, and Googled some of them and just were kind of looking at some of the, the news reports and community newspapers or TV stations. I mean, these are, you know, were loved individuals of their family and their friends that, you know, were, were volunteers at church or at schools. I mean, when this is all said and done, and we're all already over 300. I mean, this is leaving scars in communities across across the state. Right. So, you know, doing that story, it's very numbers focused. But I did want to drop a couple lines in there, like you mentioned about how there's people behind these numbers. Um, and I think I was reading, we've, there's been so much attention. I think people are really pausing this week nationally and just taking a minute to mourn or recognize the more than 100,000 deaths that we've seen from COVID-19 in America. And I was reading a ProPublica story uh, yesterday, and the author actually said, you know, to someone, each one of these people have died, who died, you know, they were everything to them. Mm -hmm. So not only, 
you know, have we seen, we've seen, um, I think as of Wednesday, 322 people have died after becoming sick with COVID-19. And, you know, along with each of those having, you know, their individuals, they had their own lives, they had their own hobbies, you know, their own families. And other than affecting, obviously, those more than 300 people, they left behind families who, you know, are scarred and mourning their deaths still. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, you know, earlier this week, you know, we saw the the New York Times front page that got a lot of attention with just the list of a thousand names, which represented one percent of of deaths across the country, and and th- you know that and some other news reports. I, I think this has kind of been a week as as we cross a hundred thousand nationwide. It's it's kind of been one of those weeks times for reflection and yeah. you know, thinking about you know those you know the actual people who have who have lost their lives. You know, as we're well past 300 here in Oklahoma, I mean, you know, I think about the major incidents in this state where we've seen deaths, whether it's the Oklahoma City bombing or the Tulsa race massacre. I mean, we have surpassed those incidents now. And, and you know, who knows what this will look like and feel like when we move past this pandemic in the years to come. But, you know, this is going to be a, a somber time in, in our state's history. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's because, you know, it's not necessarily like from a single event. I mean, it is, but it isn't, you know, like we look at the Oklahoma City bombing, um, you know, we look at the race riot. Um, I think people, you know, it's hard to really comprehend the significance of 322 people dying from Mm COVID-19 over the last few months. And I think a part of it is, Um, you know, just how politicized this pandemic has become. But I I, I am curious about how, you know, we as a state look back, because 322 people from one sickness, you know, in just a few months, it it feels like a lot. You know, and and each one has has this ripple. And I I think it was early Mm -hmm. on, I can't remember who said it, but uh, a health official early on said, when this is all said and done, you're you're going, it's kind of a weird way to say it, but you're going to know someone you're, at the very least, you're going to know someone who knows someone who died, which you yeah. know, it's kind of, a, I guess, two or three degrees of separation. I'm not sure which, but it was kind of hard to fathom that at the beginning. And uh, now that feels very real. I mean, I, I personally don't mm-hmm. not, do not know anyone who's died. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know that I know. So I mean, I probably do know someone who knows someone who's died. We just maybe because we haven't uh, reconnected in our our communities of work and you know, other spaces because we're still kind of locked down somewhat. Um, we haven't right. had a chance to really kind of learn about the impact in our own, in our own circles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've seen anecdotally um, people I know on Facebook, they might be posting. I've seen one or two posts about either family members or friends they had, or, you know, just acquaintances they had um, who died after getting sick from COVID-19. So I think in a way, it will touch everyone either, you know, other than, you know, someone, or, you know, you've been affected by someone who's gotten very sick, maybe had to be in the hospital or, you know, you lost your job, the economic impact. There's just so many angles to this pandemic that impact people in so many different ways. Well, in, in the, it's impacting people of all ages, as you've reported, but, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, you know, it's one particular generation that's been hit hard, and that is, you know, Oklahomans over the age of 65. And as you reported, mm-hmm. they account for 80 percent of reported deaths in the state. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've seen hotspots and, and nursing homes and, and care long term care facilities um, 
What's the implication of that? That our older Oklahomans, I mean, we all we've known that they've been the most vulnerable, um, but for them to be hit so hard with the number of deaths and cases, um, what is the state doing right now to continue to try to, to battle that in these in these facilities? The state, uh, two or three weeks ago, I believe, sent um, personal protective equipment to facilities. They tested all nursing home staff and residents. Um, they might be wrapping that up now since they were supposed to be done by the end of May. But, you know, the virus is still getting into these nursing homes. There's still deaths, I think, every day being reported out of these facilities. And there's some advocates I've spoken to that think, you know, testing everyone once isn't going to be enough. They think it needs to be weekly or biweekly. So the state has made some progress, has put in some policies. Um, you know, uh, visitation is still really restricted in these facilities, but um, there are some things advocates are saying that could be done differently, like the increased testing. And there are there's an advocate I talked to, um, I think either for the story we're talking about or for a previous one, who said that the state just wasn't prepared from the beginning. And you also report that you know three quarters of those who have died have had at least one chronic health condition, and it's another yeah. thing we've commonly heard is that you know those that have another health condition are are, are more at risk. Right, exactly. So say you had chron- chronic lung failure and you got COVID nineteen, and you had very severe symptoms. You know that puts not being able to breathe. You know from symptoms of COVID nineteen puts so much stress on your body, along with already having lung failure. That you know it makes sense. Doctors I've talked to um, said that would lead to death. And as you age and get older, your immune system just naturally weakens. So it's harder for your body to mount a defense to infections and to fight them off. And then you know as you get older too you're more likely to have some of these comorbidities like diabetes, um, chronic health conditions, stuff like that. So I think that's a big reason why it's been impacting, affecting um, older adults in Oklahoma so much. And not just in Oklahoma, it's, you know, it's worldwide. But I think that's a reason we're seeing older adults, adults being affected so much. And then obviously, since older adults are in those long-term care facilities, we're seeing a very big um impact there. You know, at the same time, we haven't seen the number of deaths that were uh, forecasted early on. And as you say in your story that, you mm-hmm. know, some some forecast predicted or estimated that there'd be you know, as many as 469 deaths by May 1st. Um, mm-hmm. And other models put that higher. And we've spent a lot of time in other in previous episodes talking about, you know, these are these are forecasts. These are not necessarily predictions. And mm-hmm. um, and of course, some of these forecasts are saying, you know, if we don't do anything or if we don't take these steps. But, you know, the reality is, is that we've it, it seems like at the very least we've we've flattened the curve. Yeah. Um, have we done is that be, do, do you get the sense and talking to officials and experts is that we've come in under some of those estimates because we've done a good job or was it, was this just the product of a, of a virus that we still didn't necessarily understand and not to minimize at all Mm -hmm. the number of loss of life. As we started with this episode, it's been very tragic, but, uh, uh, fortunately, at least from those early estimates, we haven't hit those numbers, at least, at least not yet. Yeah. I think it's probably a mix of those two things, but you know, largely, I think due to the social distancing measures that were taken early on, but, um, excuse me. So in the beginning of, you know, when this 
virus first started emerging in the U.S., you know, in Oklahoma, there was just so many unknowns about it. There wasn't enough testing. So we didn't know how many people had the virus, and that made it really hard to measure any kind of mortality rate for it. And we still really don't have a good mortality rate. So I think part of it was trying to estimate how many people were dying from the virus early on, mixed with, you know, people staying inside their homes, not going out, wearing masks. Um, you know, the experts I've talked to really think that made a big difference in slowing the spread, flattening that curve early on. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball at you because as we're talking, the Department of Health just issued its daily report. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen that. I haven't. Uh, so it, it shows there was uh, one additional death from the past 24 hours, but a total of, of four uh, new deaths are being counted. I always look first at that currently hospitalized number because that's what the governor has said he's focused on. And, and we're at mm -hmm. 181. So still well below what the state says our capacity is. Uh, mm -hmm. You look at these numbers every day. How would you characterize things? Are we on the rise, the decline, are we flat? I mean, how, how, would, you, how would you explain the, the current state based on, based on the numbers right now? So as far as hospitalizations go, and like you said, it's been a big metric in weighing how the state moves forward with reopening. Um, so that number includes cases that are confirmed for COVID-19, as well as those under investigation for the disease. And those numbers have been trending down according to the numbers the health department's reporting. So the highest number recorded ever was on March 31st and there were 562 hospitalizations. And the 181 was a small uptick from Tuesday when there were 156, 156 people being treated, but all in all, the trend has been going downward since we saw that peak at the end of March. And can you kind of speak to this? I mean, we, we look at the numbers every day, and I, you know, I think it was last week, remembering right there was a day where we saw our, our second high our second largest gain in new cases mm -hmm. for a day and it happened to come you know almost exactly two weeks after the state had kind of reopened and and for some this was looked at as like evidence that maybe we reopened too soon but that can sometimes be challenging to just look at the one day number i mean we're often looking at kind of the seven day rolling average um mm -hmm. You know, what, what are you, what numbers are you looking at to try to get the, the clearest picture? And I, I imagine it's beyond just looking at that one day number because there can be so many variables at play. Definitely. So the new cases have kind of been all over the place. We've seen a one day increase, like you mentioned, all the way up to 169 new cases. And then we saw um, an increase all the way down to 43 in one day. So that's been fluctuating. And what I'm mostly looking at is the seven-day average of new cases, which we look at to determine more of a trend. Mm -hmm. And that's been kind of up and down as well, but not as dramatically as the number of new cases we've been seeing every day. So let me pull up some numbers. So right now, like well, as of Wednesday, the average was at 99.6 new cases. And the highest we saw that moving average was on April 7th when there was 129.6. So it's been going up and down a little bit um, from the past week. But um, I think health officials, and I've kind of looked at the numbers behind this too, and it, it looks like it's checking out, but they've mostly been attributing these one-day big jumps to the outbreaks we've seen, such as um, the pork processing plant in Guymon, the Comanche County Jail had seen a pretty big jump after there was an outbreak there. 
the state's still in the process of testing nursing homes. And then uh, this this is kind of interesting. Mayor Holtz, he tweeted yesterday, there was a pretty sizable spike in cases in Oklahoma County um, last Friday. And he said that source was from the Federal Bureau of Prison Center in Oklahoma City, I guess. Mm. They just now reported that there's 50 cases there. And Holt said it's isolated. So um, we'll see if that was an isolated incident or if we see any other kind of spike in Oklahoma County in the coming weeks. Yeah. And so a lot of these these are grouped cases that are coming from specific places. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the places you just mentioned are either because they've been deemed essential services or just no way to get around the fact that these are going to there's going to be clumps of people. So what you know, right. you know, nursing homes didn't close down. I mean, that would be almost impossible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, pork processing plants remained open in many cases, and in prisons and jails. You know, obviously there's been some attempt to release some, but for the most part, I mean, they're going to have groups of people no matter what. And mm-hmm. so, looking at that, even as we reopen. It, it makes me think that that's why it remains important for maybe large companies to remain closed or, you know, I know we're in summer break anyway, so schools wouldn't be gathering, but mm-hmm. why it's important for schools to be closed. And, you know, I've mentioned this before, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see churches and how our church is going to be, you know, reopening and because that's another place that hasn't been open, yeah. that, uh, you know, that now could, could spark, uh, you know, new hotspots. And so, um, you know, not to say that you can't get it when you just go to the grocery store or those kind of things, but where we're seeing mm-hmm. these big clumps of cases, these hotspots are, are these kind of isolated areas where there are large groups of people. And so, uh, you know, churches or sporting events, you know, now that might be mm-hmm. coming back online, uh, I think will be really important to watch. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen in other parts of the country cases coming from, you know, big parties, uh, church services, places like that. So it does look like the cases for now, you know, are kind of hot spots and those big gatherings like processing plants, prisons, um, where you're close together, close proximity. And so June 1st, the state is set to enter phase three of the governor's plan to reopen. So that'll be kind of interesting to see too, that things, it seems like after that might be almost back to normal though um, the governor is still encouraging social distancing measures. Yeah. So what what's involved in phase three? Yeah. So I, I expect we'll hear more from Governor Stitt about phase three in the coming days. But um, just for some context, phase two, um, it was a little more than two weeks ago, I think. We saw bars open, uh, non-essential travel resumed, organized sports activities restarted up, uh, funerals and weddings can continue. And Phase three, um, so employers can resume unrestricted staffing levels, summer camps can reopen, you know, school camps, church school camps, that sort of thing. Um, But the details on that so far have been pretty vague, I guess. The governor said when he was announcing this plan that he would offer more details on phase three, sometime in phase two. So I'm expecting since we're seeing June um, this Monday, We'll, we'll be hearing more about that soon. Yeah. You know, we've talked before about kind of how partisan this issue has become. Um, and mm-hmm. that, you know, it's no news to anybody who's on social media, obviously. But uh, it, it does seem like as we reopen, we're seeing some partisan or at the very least just kind of cultural lenses that people are using to look at these cases. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. summer camps. Many have been closed. I know my son who does 
you know, art and theater camp in the summer. Uh, they will not be having in-person camps this year. But we've seen some reports of maybe some, um, you know, Christian youth camps that are going to go ahead. And so uh, and maybe mm-hmm. in some kind of rural areas or maybe some more culturally conservative areas, there's there's a little bit more confidence that we can gather. Um, you know, I got a notice today that there's a candidate forum for Republican candidates running in a congressional primary. They're going to have an in-person forum mm. uh, this week. Now, they are limiting the number of people who can come in. But, you know, I, I almost wonder in a way if, if for the Republican Party of the state saying, hey, we're going to have an in-person primary um, mm-hmm. to show kind of our confidence in the direction things are going. Um I'd almost be surprised if I saw the Democratic Party holding an in-person just because of how kind of like said partisan and cultural, you know, this this issue has become. You know, you live in, in urban Tulsa. I live in urban Oklahoma mm-hmm. City. I'm sure it's the case for you. I mean, most of the restaurants uh, like local restaurants around me are, are still closed. And some of that may just be logistics. But I think others it's because, you know, the restaurant owners who, who live in this community are, are still a little bit. Uh, sensitive about opening while Mm -hmm. maybe suburban and rural communities it seems like it's business back to normal yeah and it seems like part of it has something to do with population density and how many cases they see in their community but I do think on the other side it is political you know we've kind of seen that split between Democrats and Republicans and just for a very recent example um, you know Memorial Day we kind of saw a tiff uh, when Donald Trump uh, called out, you know, Joe Biden, who's the presumed Democratic candidate for wearing a mask mm-hmm. to the memorial service. Um, and, you know, President Trump really hasn't been wearing a mask out in public. So I think it is politicized how, you know, people are responding to the pandemic, you know, whether they're going on with their lives, whether they're wearing a mask. So it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, you, you know, that town hall is continuing and they are Republican. I wonder if, that has something to do with it. Um, I, I think I think it's hard to believe maybe it doesn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, and and we've said before. I mean, I I don't think I think you can be someone who has different opinions on this and and still be coming from a place of of, of being rational and definitely um, and, and coming to your opinion honestly. I mean, I, I think if you you know, do I think people should be wearing masks? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I have a mask. Um, I went to an appointment the other day and I forgot to bring it. And the person I was meeting with was like, it's fine with me. I don't care. And mm-hmm. I wasn't too worried. I don't think I, you know, committed a crime in meeting with this person. Um, right. So, I mean, sometimes it's just logistics, you know, did you forget your mask or not, I guess. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I just, I think it's, such, this is such a complicated issue um, that it, I think it gets hard when things get shoved into a, a, a black and white, you know, context, which is, mm-hmm. you know, of course, what social media is very great at doing is dividing us into two camps. But, um, you know, I think I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And so, you know, if a state Republican Party is holding a candidate forum in person, um, I don't think that necessarily means that they are not taking it seriously. Like I said, they're, sure. they're, they're limiting the number of people that can come mm-hmm. in and taking other precautions. But, you know, hey, they're a political party. This is a political issue. So you're obviously going to have political questions. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. And yeah, I agree with you that it's not a black and white issue. And I try not to, you know, just put it into two separate categories in my mind because it is it is complicated. And, um, you know, I've seen people, Democratic, Republican, taking it seriously. I've seen people, you know, more on the Democratic side side who don't want to wear a mask. And, um, you know, it just 
it's easy to draw conclusions from stuff like that. You know, you see someone wearing a mask, you see someone not wearing a mask, but it's, it's complicated. I, I think sometimes people might read too much into it. Yeah. Well, definitely it's complicated. The numbers are complicated. The, the everything's the, complicated. The, everything about it's complicated. <laughs> and so it's why I really kind of appreciate this opportunity to kind of speak and break down. Not that we have all the answers, but hopefully we can, you know, talk about what we know and what we don't know. Um, and kind of provide some of that context. So uh, Cassie, uh, thanks so much for your time this week and, and thanks for your work. Thank you. You can make sure that you're listening to the latest episode by subscribing to the Listen Frontier podcast feed, which also includes our weekly episodes of COVID-19 in Oklahoma. For more coverage, visit readfrontier.org. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you next week.